This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Hi and welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Robin. And I'm Jen. And today's episode is about Olive Ann Oatman. Who is this young lady? I'll tell you. Okay. So it was the summer of 1849 and Olive Ann Oatman was about 11 years old when her dad, Royce Oatman, a former farmer and store owner from New York, decided to uproot his family and relocate her and her mother, her three sisters and three brothers, all ranging from the ages of 1 to 17, to the New Mexico Territory, which is now Arizona. So there are seven kids. And their dad in New York is like, let's go, I think. Let's just move. So they have to say goodbye to all their friends teachers, whatever's going on in 1849 New York City. He just uproots them. He's like, let's head out. I mean, if anything, it was the people in their life that has been in their life for the last 17 years because their oldest child was 17. Of course. Aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins. Yeah. Rude. As Royce was planning the trip for him and his family's new life, he could not have known what was about to happen or that it would lead them to a tragic and horrific fate. Aww. With his plan to forge a better life, he and his family joined a colony of Roosterite Mormons and joined their plan to settle in the Yuma area. Okay. Included with the Oatman family were 50 other colonists that gathered in Independence, Missouri in the spring of 1850. They organized a wagon trail under James Brewster, and on August 10th, they embarked on their journey down the Santa Fe Trail. It did not take long for disagreements to start that caused conflicts and confusion among the people and which eventually caused the group to split. Eight of the wagons now follow the Rio Grande Gila route and Royce Oatman at the head of the trail. With a shift in his objective and a new determination to go to California, Oatman led his party with little compassion. They rode long and hard under the sun's aggressive heat and atop the unruly terrain and when several of his oxen collapsed from exhaustion and members of the crew wanted to stop and rest... He forged on with his family, fearing that his stock would perish before reaching California. I told you, Royce is a dick. It's just, you know, I, I think every story that we've told like this is the same fear, is that their livestock and their ox will fail or would perish before they get to their destination. So they're just like, keep going, keep going, keep going. And then it just ends in horror every fucking time. Just like, just cool, cool your jets. I mean, so for us, I guess we have the benefit of hindsight. Mm-hmm. So we can look back at history and be like, you know what? I played Oregon Trail. I know. <laughs> and I know it's always worth it to feed them, water them, and wait through the winter. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know, we've learned very valuable lessons from Oregon Trail. If It's like if you're going to ration everything, you include your livestock in that ration. Of course. Exactly. You have to factor their health into it because... Your health depends on their health. So you have to take care of them. You can't push them to the limit. And also children and whole other families. Yeah. They're like, you know what, Royce? 
you're kind of a douchebag and we're just not even interested in being with you right now because you're going too hard and too fast. I mean, honestly, if you think about this was older than times with, you know, trails and wagons and oxen and everything, but it's still kind of the same thing today. We can't get to our destination if we run out of gas. We're like, oh, my gas is tank's empty. It's okay. Just keep going. We'll, we'll get there. Just keep going. We have to make time. We have to make time. Yeah. You know, you're not it's wrong. like, it's, you're not wrong. it's the same. You have to take care of your livestock and you have to take care of your vehicle. Yeah. Either way, you know, you got to make rations yeah. for both. So by March 18th of 1851, the Oatmans have been traveling for nearly a year. The family was moving along the Gila River, all, uh, later known as the Oatman Flat when roughly 19 Yavapa, or Apache, attacked them. They were 80 miles from Fort Yuma. Young Olive, now 13, watched in horror as her mother, father, brothers, and sisters were bludgeoned in their heads with war clubs until they died. Not awesome. Only her and her sister Marianne, a seven-year-old, were left unharmed. Do you think that if they had been in a larger group, they would have not been attacked? I'm thinking yes. Uh, also, mm. I'm thinking that if it, if they just saw like, you know, hey, these people are on our territory. There's more of us than there are of them. I think they've been watched. I think they've been watched this entire time, and I think that uh, I don't. I'm not sure how far along it was in this case where the you know the massacre happened from when they left the other trail, the other people in the trail. I don't know how long that was. But I think that the second they came into some type of territory, they've been watched. And they were just waiting for a weak point. And I think they just waited it out and waited it out. And then finally they realized, okay, this is time to attack. Because everyone's, like, at this time, they're hunter and gatherers. That's what they do, you know? And there's a reason to attack. So I think that they, they were watched the entire time. Her brother Lorenzo, at the age of 15, was left for dead but managed to escape. After the attack, Lorenzo awoke to find his parents and siblings dead, but saw no sign of little Marianne or Olive. He attempted the hazardous trail back to find help. He eventually reached a settlement where his wounds were treated. He rejoined the trail and three days later returned to the bodies of his slain family, where he Ugh. buried them in all in one grave. The men with them had no way of digging proper graves in the rocky soil, so they gathered them all together and formed one of those cairns that is a large mound formed of rocks. It is said that the remains were reburied a few times and finally moved to the river for reinterment by early Arizona colonizer Charles Poston. Lorenzo Oatman became determined to never give up the search for his only surviving relatives. Why do you think they didn't kill those two? Labor? I don't know. Keep going. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. All right. Oh, you're young? Cool. We'll take it. Yeah. But like, there were a lot of young ones, right? Maybe too young. They don't want to raise. Ugh. Okay. You have from the ages of 1 to 17. Lorenzo at this point is 15. I don't know. Maybe they had no use for men. But they killed him. He would have been perfect prime age for work. Well, now you have a 15-year-old and a 7-year-old. So it's like the 15-year-old, or I'm sorry, 13. 13 can take care of the 7. But it seems like they kept the girls. Yeah. Well, it, Olive was 13. Marianne was 7. So the 13-year-old right. can watch the 7-year-old. The 7-year-old is old enough to also work. Olive is just around marriaging age, almost. 
it's easier, I guess. And then you Ugh. have you have children from the ages of one to seventeen. A one year old is a very difficult. Two year old, more mouths to feed. They, I guess, they just kind of just took what was available or looks. They're like, oh, she's pretty. She's pretty. You never know. Rude. You never know. This is a rude story, Robin. Sorry. Olive and Mary Ann were abducted and brought to the Yavapa village where they were made to do hard work and often beaten. In their new lives, the young girls were expected to bring food, tend to fires, and gather grass seeds and perform other tasks. A year passed. Okay, that was very sinister the way you said that. What? <laughs> uh, like, in quotation marks, other mm-hmm. tasks? Yeah. Like. It doesn't list the other tasks. You can use your own imagination. It could be anything, though. It could just be um, helping the chief Maybe and his wife. Maybe they just wife. had to, like, could be, clean you know, up after animals or something. Something. Maybe it's like a poop thing. I hope it's just a poop thing. It's a poop thing. Let's just, we're going to say it's a poop thing. A year passed, and the Yavapai sold the Oatman sisters to some visiting Mojaves, who took them on foot to their village on the Colorado River, north of Bill Williams Fort. It is said that the daughter of the Mojave chief, Espanoli, saw the girls and their poor treatment during a trading expedition. She tried to make a trade for the girls, but the Yavapais refused. But the chief's daughter, Topeka, was very persistent and returned once more offering trade for the girls. Eventually, they gave in and traded the girls for two horses, some vegetables, blankets, and some beads. Sounds like a pretty decent deal. <laughs> you know? A couple white girls, a couple blankets. I'm being sarcastic. I know. No one should ever buy another person under any circumstances. Please don't. The Mojave lived in better shelters than the Yavapais, and they treated the sisters with more kindness while also providing them with ground space and soil to grow wheat, corn, and melons. Historians have found some evidence that the girls were reasonably happy in their new captivity. Both the chief's wife, Ispanio, and the daughter, Topeka, took interest in the Oatman girls' well-being. It is documented that years after her captivity, Olive still spoke with deep affection about these two women. Whether the Oatman girls were truly adopted into the Mojave family is unknown. Hmm. Olive would later write about her experience saying, They pricked the chin in small, regular rows on our chins with a very sharp stick until they bled freely. Uh, if you Google her, Olive Oatman, you'll see a picture. And at first you think that it's like some type of deformity. Yeah. But really it's just a tattoo place. And, and of course, as you get older and you grow and you change so do the marks on your face yeah and uh at first i thought that you know there were scars i thought there were scars from an accident an incident whatever but um but the reading of it is just that they're blue tattoos they go they yeah they go long ways like vertical and multiple stripes so it's like it's like one two three four like six six stripes on her on her face nobody can see you doing that robin but what she's doing but you is <laughs> making lines from her lower lip down her chin and there are four or five or six of them actually i believe they go i think they go above her lip too oh okay i think so. it's i think it's right below her nose and it goes above her lip kind of over her lip in a straight line downward goes to her chin so imagine just lines that go from under your nose over your mouth down to your chin so treat yourself everyone olive and oatman quick google search and they're blue but of course the pictures are in black and white so you can't tell but in 1853 a drought plagued the region causing crops to dry up and many native americans to starve young mary ann her sister grew too weak to accompany olive on her hunts for seeds roots and other grains and she perished 
Oh. Meanwhile, Lorenzo Oatman, who was left for dead during his family's massacre, returned to the families that had stayed behind when his father insisted on moving towards California. They took him to Fort Yuma and immediately began a frantic effort to trace his sister's whereabouts. His efforts were successful, and on February 22, 1856, the Fort Yuma commandment sent Francisco, a Yuma Indian messenger who helped trace Olive Oatman to the village in Mojave Valley to arrange for her release. The Mojave people initially hid Olive and resisted the request for her release, first denying that Olive was even a white woman. Over the course of the negotiations, they also expressed their affection for Olive, Shortly afterwards, Francisco made a second attempt to persuade the Mojaves to part with Olive, offering them blankets and a white horse in exchange, and he also passed on threats that the whites would destroy the Mojave if they did not release Olive Oatman. None of this is good. It's really hard to take a side. Like, the Mojave were not the ones that kidnapped her. They, in fact, saw her being mistreated and took her in. Then people show up. Because the chief's daughter saw her and was like, we need to help these these girls. Yeah, because he's like, uh, they're in a bad situation. So now they have these girls and they're protecting them. And then these people show up and threaten to, like, murder them all if they don't give them to them. It's like, but they don't understand what's happening to them yes they've been purchased but it doesn't really seem that they're treated as slaves or captives yeah and there's they're there's just sort been... of like members of the tribe you know everyone needs to do a certain amount of work everyone has a job everyone yeah. has a job and but they're not if, doing an exceptionally different amount of work gained two people those two people they get a job no yeah. one's working harder than the other. They're all they're all yeah. working just as hard. And there's some um, speculation to the whole thing because right now, you know, they're they're denying that she's even a white woman. When clearly they have to know she is. Yes. And but there with the with the tradition of the tattoo, it leads people to wonder if Olive was forced that or if she wanted to have that because she wanted to be part of the tribe okay. so like I mean, she so this is a girl right she's 13 years old at this point at this point she's, she's what, older, 16 yeah. 17 yeah, probably, yeah. it's been a few years she thinks that her entire family is dead mm-hmm. when she left everyone is dead on the ground except for her little sister and now her little sister is dead the only people in the world that she has any attachment to are the members of this mojave tribe so she has no. She has no idea Lorenzo's looking for her. She has no she idea. Know. It, yeah, no. You know, ugh. So she wants to be part. She's like, why am I the only woman here? Of course, that does not have this marking. Please give me this marking. You know. Yeah, she wants to belong. She wants a place to feel safe and call home, like any other child, or I mean, young woman, ideally. Any person. Yeah. Any person. So after some discussion in which Olive was included, the Mojave decided to accept these terms. And on February 28th of 1856, Olive Ann Oatman was ransomed and escorted on a 20-day journey to Fort Yuma. Before entering the fort, 
Olive insisted that she be given proper clothing, as she was clad in a traditional Mojave skirt with no coverings above her waist. Inside the fort, Olive was surrounded by cheering people, and within days she discovered her brother Lorenzo was alive and had been looking for her. The reunion made headlines across the West. Yeah, that's really nice. So Olive had assimilated so well into the Mojave culture during those years that she lived among them that she had nearly forgotten English. But after returning to the East to live with relatives in Albany, New York, she attended school and quickly regained her English tongue. That is quite a culture shock. In 1857, she shared a story with California clergyman Reverend Royal B. Stratton, where he wrote his story called Life Among the Indians, Captivity of the Oatman Girls. It was extremely successful and sold out three editions in just one year, a bestseller in that era. In 1858, Olive went on the lecture circuit to promote his book. These appearances were among the few occasions on which she appeared in public without wearing a veil to cover her tattooed face. Olive stated that the Mojave tattoo... Nope, sorry. Olive stated that the Mojave tattooed their captives to ensure that they would be recognized if they escaped, but neglecting to mention that most Mojave women wore those chin tattoos. So she's kind of saying that, oh, she got the tattoo because if she escapes, she'll be easily found. But yet all women have that. So now she's kind of. So if any woman escapes, they're able to find them. <laughs> but then at the beginning, they said that these chin tattoos were done so people can be recognized in the afterlife. Yeah. So it's just, which story is she going with? Because right now she seems very confused. Of course she is. I mean, can you even imagine? I mean, it's an unimaginable and unthinkable situation to be in. So whatever she says is whatever she's feeling at that moment. And I think that's just fine. Well, yeah. And that's also a thing, though, is that much of what actually happened to Olive during her time remains unknown. Because she, she'll, she'll give the basics. She'll tell you the story. But... The deep, the deep stuff, she's just not, she's not really yeah. talking about it. In response to rumors to the contrary, Olive denied that she had been married to a Mojave or was ever raped or sexually mistreated by either tribe. In Stratton's book, she declared that to the honor of these savages, let it be said, they never offered the least unchaste abuse upon me. I mean, sorry, but not only, like, she would... Because that's the first question. That's the first question. Were you mistreated? Were you harmed? Were you sexually abused? Were it, any of that kind of thing. But even if she was, she probably wouldn't want to say. Yeah. Because then she'd never be able to get married. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, she would want to maintain her virginity during that day and age. So even if she had been married to a Mojave man, even if she had born Mojave she children, it, yeah. she probably wouldn't say because she knows what white society is like. She knows what she's returning to. And she's in upstate New York. Like, they're going to be like, hey, did those Indians diddle you? She's going to say no, regardless if she did or not. So based on medicine, though, and science, do you think like in 1858, they were able to tell whether she gave no, birth or not? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And they would not have ever examined her. They wouldn't. Yeah, they wouldn't even know what to do. Yeah. I mean, think about the Mary Toft case. That was right around the same time. This woman was pulling bits of rabbits out of her cooter. And they were like, oh, yeah, she just, you know, she just saw a rabbit in the garden and managed to give birth to a rabbit today. Like, and that was their science. That was as far as science went. So, 
A three a three cat with no head. Yeah. Like, I don't think so. But I do think that there would be some element of her fabricating her own history Absolutely. to be able to Absolutely. move forward. And I think that everyone's allowed that. Because I do think if she was living in that village and in that tribe for four years, it's very likely that she probably was married. A young woman of childbearing years, I think it's likely that she was married to a Mojave man. I think that makes more sense than the opposite. Because if you think about a time where like seven-year-olds are just dropping dead left, right, and center, like life is precious. You have to keep having kids. They're not going to be like, oh, we're just not going to, we're not going to marry her, even though she's like of childbearing years. They're going to want to have kids. Yeah. And now, now I'm wondering if her tattoo was a way of entering the tribe so she can get married. Yes. That's my thought process. I understand why she's saying what she's saying. And of course, I have no proof. This is all theoretical. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's so many different types of theories. So evidence does suggest that she was happily living with the Mojave, willingly accepting that tattoo, and neglected some opportunities to make her situation known to white people that the tribe even encountered. So every time they, they ran into someone else, she kind of hid in and kind of just Not went just on. that. She doesn't really tell specific stories. Mm-hmm. I think the... The sort of narrative that she gives is very, like, gray. And it's, like, intentionally unspecific. Because she's not lying. She's just not saying. Yeah. So, like, while while Olive sometimes spoke with fondness of the Mojave, she became less positive about her experience over time. Because now people say that she may have suffered from Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. I mean. But if you're bringing into a place like that at a young age. And then pretty much your young adult woman life was all about this community that you lived in and this culture and these traditions. It's like, here's the thing. Your family's dead on the ground. You go live with some people who beat you constantly and make you work like a dog. And then these people come out of the blue and they rescue you. Someone else takes you. They feed you. They treat you at least relatively decent. Now, even so, You have a way, or at least I know that I personally do, and I'm sure a lot of people do, of sort of changing, like, the way that you remember things changes. Like, things that you remembered fondly for many years. Suddenly, as an adult, you look back and go, oh, that wasn't right. That was, that was really inappropriate. Why do I remember that fondly? That was actually quite bad. And I'm sure she had a very similar experience. Like, looking back, she was probably like, oh, I, I didn't want to be there. I just didn't know my family was there. So, actually, they were holding me hostage. And I and in her mind, she had nowhere else to go. She had nowhere else to go. She's in a territory she's never been to before. She's from New York. So, she's just going with the flow, trying to survive, right? And then you bring her out here. Her wagon's gone. Her family's gone. There's no transportation. And she's just like... She's like, there's no way in hell I can escape in the middle of the night and survive on my own. No, absolutely not. There's no way. So what do I have to do? I have to become part of the tribe. You just have to survive. And that's what she did. She did what she had to do to survive. And it sounds like that's what she did her whole life. So royalties from Stratton's book paid for the education of Lorenzo and Olive at the University of the Pacific. 
In November of 1865, Olive married cattleman John Fairchild. They lived in Detroit, Michigan for seven years before moving to Sherman, Texas, where Fairchild was the president of the city bank. He made his fortune there in banking and real estate. Man, Olive Ann Oatman had a real glow up there, right? Like, she ends up married to, like, like super rich dude? Yeah, he made a fortune, you said? He's also, uh, it's also said that he burned all copies of Stratton's book that he could find. And He's like, you know what, baby girl? You got no history. Your history starts the day you met me. And in 1876, I... Olive... <laughs> Right? Hey, baby girl. That's just like how I imagine it. He burned all the books he can find. He's like, fuck that shit. And he's wealthy. He can find all of You're them. You're my boo. And I'm he was like, I need you. someone to go and find every library and every store and buy every book and bring it back here. He married a girl with tattoos on her face. This guy is cool. I don't know who he is, but I feel like he's cool. I mean, when his choice in like 1860 something's like her, that one. What's her name? Olive. Come here. Come here. Hi. I, I like this whole thing. What's going on? What's going on here? What's your deal? All right. What's your deal? All right, I'm cool. into it. All right. Let's go. Come on. We're getting married. Or. Or it could be the exact opposite, and he's really embarrassed about her, and he wanted to burn all the books because he didn't want anyone to know about his uh, his wife's past. I mean, I guess that's true, but, like, if you don't want somebody to know about your wife's past, you don't marry someone with tattoos on their face. Was makeup a thing back then? <laughs> Was full coverage foundation a thing back then? They barely had full coverage foundation in the 90s. It's true. It's true. I can't find a nice one now. Exactly. Like, you really got to get yeah. deep on that Kat but, Von D shit. But, like, I, but I'm, I'm kind of sort of going back and forth like was he embarrassed by it so he burned them i mean we can see both sides but i'm deciding to like the other side i like to i like to think that he is so in love that he doesn't care what her life was like he doesn't want her to constantly be remembered by it by people bringing it up being like oh hey you're the lady that i read in that book that one time you know i like to imagine him as cool so in 1876 olive and john adopted a baby girl named mammy Oh, hi, baby Mammy. Little Mammy Fairchild. Olive was interested in the welfare of orphans, but rarely discussed her own youth as an orphan and Native American captive. She always kept a jar of hazelnuts, which was a staple Mojave food. Olive Oatman Fairchild died of a heart attack on March 20th of 1903 at the age of 65. She is buried at the West Hill Cemetery in Sherman, Texas. The town of Oatman, Arizona, a ghost town renewed by tourists from a nearby gambling town, is named in her honor. A Texas historical marker was placed at her grave in 1969. So that is the story of Olive Ann Oatman. Just another notorious narrative. If you enjoy our episodes, you can also go to patreon.com slash notorious narratives, where you can access exclusive content. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to be notified when a new episode is available. Keep it weird and never stop exploring.